Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. The transition from rap artist and Asian beats DJ to serious journalist with strong opinions has seemed, at least on the surface, pretty seamless for DJ Nihal, going from the BBC's biggest pop station, BBC Radio 1, to hosting key news programmes on BBC Radio 5 Live and the BBC Asian Network. Along the way, he's learned to embrace his Sri Lankan heritage, trace Buddha's steps in India, DJed at the best parties and festivals all over the world and surprised himself by enjoying a family cruise. On his BBC Asian Network show, he aims to kick the multicultural hornet's nest. And today on the Big Travel Podcast, we kick just this and much more. Please welcome Nihal Arthanayaka. You were born to Buddhist Sri Lankan parents but grew up in the cultural enclave, should we say, of Essex. Yeah. And you're now on... BBC Asian Network, Five Live, and previously on Radio One. Yeah, and, and One Extra. Yeah. And One Extra. Is that how I can sum you up? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I do documentaries for Radio Four as well. So, and I do uh, covering for Six Music. So, apart from Radio Three, I think I'm on pretty much. I have been, or am on every radio network that the BBC has. But I love radio. I love, I love that. I love the medium. It sounds like you've been on a roll. Was there ever any point that you weren't on a roll and you thought, oh, God, what's my next job? Because you've transitioned nicely from music to, to Well, talk. I mean, you know, even now I think that. You know, even, even 16 years deep into my BBC career, it's not set in stone. None of this stuff has, you know. We're not earning that kind of, you know, Lineker, Evans, Vine money. You know, where you can go, OK, I'm now part of the firm. And I, I asked Mira Sayal about this. That she's part of, oh, you're part of the establishment now. And she's like, no, I'm not. Not at all. You know, I still have to go out there and hustle. And you kind of think this situation that it will just come to you. And perhaps you think that everybody else is coming to them and it's not coming to you. And then you realise actually everybody's out there still struggling and hustling. And there's always a very select few people. You know, there's the Anton Dex and the Graham Nortons and the people who are just worth so much money and have been so much part of it. But remember... This is my first really big weekly daytime national radio show in my 40s. So all the other stuff, you know, you know, I get cab drivers who go, oh, yeah, I used to listen to you on Radio 1 at the weekends or that. But it was all just still kind of slightly gradual. And so in many ways, you know, it's taken 16 years to be an overnight success. So how do you feel about the whole Asian thing? Because you've been brought up with Sri Lankan parents and you've been back regularly to Sri Lanka. Yeah. So you are part of that culture or community. Because I feel when, when I... I don't think of myself as a British Asian because I've never had a cultural or, or community connection to that whole thing, if there is a thing. Do you feel connected to... Are you a British Asian? I've got a fairly odd relationship with that in that I know I'm Asian, right? And I know I'm Sri Lankan. I know all of those things. But I, I'm happy not to be living in an Asian area, surrounded by Asian people, brought up in... I'm happy that that was not my upbringing. 
someone said to me today actually that and this is an asian person that they're against multiculturalism but they're pro interculturalism and i agree with that you know but now that i've moved to the northwest i see the segregation there in front of me all the time and it, it troubles me i just wish we could all kind of live side by side as we do to a certain extent in london but you can drive through Wembley and not see a white face. You know, there's parts of East London and you not see a white face. You go to Southall, you see the odd one or two white faces. And then you go to other areas of London, it'd be all white faces. You can't force people to live together, but maybe you shift because naturally it doesn't seem to be working out very well. And I'm proud to be a brown person in a fairly public role. You know, I'm not super famous by any stretch of imagination, but to be in a public enough role that young brown people will go, well, if he could do it from a state school in Essex and be in that job on Daytime 5 Live interviewing Sir Elton John or Eric Cantona or Cara Delevingne, then I can do it. That's good. I think you need to be able to see it to be it. You know, that's what I want people to be able to do. I want my kids to see this as normal. On the, your show on the BBC Asian Network, you've said, and I, I read that you, you said that you want to kick the multicultural hornet's nest. Is that what you aim to do with that? Yeah, I think for me it was about putting a mirror up to some of the darkest things that go on with the Asian community and to get Asians to talk about issues that they would rather not talk about. So whether it be discrimination against darker-skinned Asians, whether it be the caste system, whether it be honour based violence, whether it be terrorism and extremism, whether it be caste discrimination between one group of Sikhs and another, or one group of Hindus and the other, to kind of just expose that and say, well, why is this happening? And that's what it was about, to see why is it that there is discrimination between Asians and black people. You know, those kinds of conversations, which I didn't feel as though beforehand people were having. So I'm second generation and... I wanted to encourage a third generation to talk about it, and I wanted to talk about it. And because I didn't come from an Asian community, because if you're Sri Lankan, Sinhalese, Buddhist, you're a minority of a minority of a minority. If you're Sri Lankan, you're a minority. If you're Sinhalese, you're a minority, because most Sri Lankans in this country are probably Tamil. Buddhists are a very small number of people in this country. So all of that meant that I could get a real spectator's view, Lisa, on on that, on, on the Asian community and go, well, that doesn't seem right. Why are you giving sweets when a boy is born, but not when a girl is born? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why would you want your son to go to university, but not your daughter? Why would you throw your child out of the house because they're gay? Why, why would you do that? It's not civilised. You can't allow your culture to give you an excuse to be uncivilised. And for years, I think those cultures that were doing that, were allowed to because people were scared of saying, well, we'll be deemed racist or we'll be deemed culturally insensitive. And people in my colour knew that they could play that card and they knew that they could use that as a shield. And we were there to kind of lift that shield and go, you can't do that. It's true. I think people, liberal, white people particularly, don't like to be tarnished with the racist brush, of course. None of us do. But people are almost a little bit afraid of pulling up issues when there are issues which is ridiculous because there's issues in every culture every community every race every color for certain liberals we have to be their kind of asian or their kind of black person and if we're a little bit angry or a little you know don't get out of your box right we'll give you a job we'll pat you on the head 
make you feel good about yourselves. We'll give you an opportunity because we like diversity, but we're not going to give you too much of an opportunity. And we certainly don't want you to be angry about it when we give you only a little opportunity and not give you too much opportunity. We don't want to be angry because that's, you know, it's ungrateful. That I find despicable. You know, I called out what I saw at Radio 1 at One Extra. And the response from people in some quarters was quite enlightening. You know, some people go through life thinking that they're brilliantly diverse, that they're brilliantly open-minded. And what did you see happening there? Well, it was just a case of, I could see that, this was years ago now, it was probably four years ago, that all the black people worked on One Extra, all the white people worked on Radio 1, all the Asian people worked on Asian Network. And yet, the higher up you went, the less people of that colour you would see. So that controllers and head of programmes and producer level, you didn't see as much diversity as you should. And I called them out on it publicly in The Guardian. And it went down like a cup of cold sick. But you know what? As Gloria Steinem said, the truth will set you free. But before that, it will piss you off. Do you think things are changing from the ground upwards? I mean, I say this so many times, but as a young person who doesn't have parents that live in London or maybe Manchester now, but particularly in London, who doesn't have peers, who doesn't have those brown people or black people at the top that they can even think that that might be a potential career path. Do you think that that is changing slowly? I know it doesn't look at, seem it when you look at the higher echelons of media, particularly we're talking about, and, and many industries as well. But do you think from the ground upwards, hopefully it's changing? There's, there's no denying there's a huge amount of progress in what we are seeing now. We will see more people of colour in front of the camera. We will see more people of colour making documentaries, having things commissioned. Netflix has been amazing. You know, you look at Netflix and you see people of colour all over it. You know, Aziz Ansari, you'll see in there, you'll see uh, there's amazement, like Donald Glover with Atlanta. I mean, you just see it. We're still playing catch up to a certain extent in this country. Sky have done a great job with Idris Elba. But again, Idris had to go to America to come back. You know, Riz Ahmed, huge talent that we have here in this country. And let's see, you know, the BBC should be all over Riz Ahmed. They probably won't be able to pay him enough. That's the problem because he's doing HBO and, you know, he's in a Bourne movie. But, you know, when are they going to give him a series? When are they going to see Riz Ahmed as the equivalent to any kind of any number of posh middle class public school boys that they put in the front of, you know, Riz Ahmed, 100. I mean, look, Riz Ahmed went to a public school and went to Oxford. <laughs> but, yes. um, but still, you know, I want to see him fronting something. So I better get on to travel. So yes. Sorry. A good place to start would be Sri Lanka. Yeah. So did you go there? Because that, that's quite lucky if you went there when you were younger. I know you go regularly now, but as a child growing up in Essex, were you able to yeah, go every three to the years. homeland, as it were? Yeah, every three years, my parents would save up and our first impressions of it were really odd. It was alien. I didn't like the food. I didn't like the smells. I didn't like the taste. I didn't like the cockroaches. I didn't like the heat. I didn't like being bitten by mosquitoes. I didn't like any of it. And then I came back and uh, I was so upset. I was so upset. I remember I was in a metalwork class and just burst into tears in front of a guy called David. And David was like, look, I know what it's like. Luckily, his mum was from Italy, so he understood what it was like to go to a country. And it's interesting. When you look, I was born here. I've spent in total one year of my life in Sri Lanka of the 46 years I've spent on planet Earth. So I am much more British in geographical location but you touch down in Sri Lanka and there's this feeling that your soul has returned to somewhere that those smells that I once found as unsavoury are suddenly this comfort blanket that the heat that I found oppressive 
is all of a sudden comforting and uplifting that the tastes that I found repugnant are familiar and they excite the palate so there's lots of things now as an adult when I go back to I mean I'm currently in the process of trying to work out if I can afford to for, for all four of us to go this summer I mean my wife and kids will almost certainly go and I miss it you know I miss it massively I miss looking around and seeing everybody that kind of looks like me that's a good thing. Have you got family there? Oh, yeah. My wife is from Sri Lanka, so although she was raised in America, uh, we stay at her family house in Colombo. My kids have all their cousins on the block, so they're all in and out of each other's houses and they're playing cricket and they're playing football out on the street. It's great, you know. I keep saying to my wife, I want to retire there, and she's like, well, if we have grandchildren, I'm not retiring there. And I was like, screw the grandchildren. I'm going to Sri Lanka for six months a year. Like, I'm all about it. Why? Because you think the grandchildren will be here? Yeah, almost certainly, yeah. I guess they'll be here. But, I mean, who knows, actually, saying that? Who knows where they'll be? You know, Sri Lanka, in 15 years' time, the economy might be right, the corruption and the way of doing things may be a bit more conducive to someone like my daughter or son raised here, that they might want to go out there and and spend some time there. But, I mean, I I love it there. I I want to uh, work out how I can spend... By the time I get to kind of late 50s, work out how I can spend half the year there and half the year. Who knows? That's what I would like. I read about you going to India after your father passed away. I don't know if the two were connected, but it seemed that you wanted to make some sort of pilgrimage to get back in touch with spirituality. And it sounded like an amazing trip. What were you doing there? I discovered, I I should know this, but it was in my 30s. And I discovered that um, the Lord Buddha... Buddhist gained enlightenment at a certain age where he sat under this Bodhi tree in a place called Bodhgaya, which is in Bihar, which is the poorest state in India. I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to go. And I just went to Bihar, sat near that tree. It was off season, so I was the only person staying in the whole hotel. It was weird. It was like The Shining. And uh, just went to that place. Thinking back on it, I don't think of it as now as somewhere where suddenly I had this spiritual enlightenment or that I felt brilliant for sitting and seeing this tree that the Lord Buddha had sat under thousands of years ago. I just kind of went there and then thought, hmm, because I think maybe I need to have the time and space to disconnect more from the world. And when you've got an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, you can't disconnect. You can't just say to your wife, look, I'm going away for a week and I can't be contacted. You can't do that to them. You You can't impose that vulnerability on them. You have to be able to say... I can be connected, but I need that. You know, my, my world is, you know, just today is two hours of live television, three hours of radio, a podcast, uh, a meeting after that, which will finish at around seven, and then dinner with some friends, because I'm in London from Manchester, so meet seven, and that will finish at nine, back to the hotel, up again at seven, back on the TV, back on the radio, probably some meetings after that, 9 p.m. train back to Manchester tomorrow night, voiceover recording on Thursday morning, at nine for a Radio 4 documentary, followed by a three-hour radio show. So it's like, it's it's relentless. Then I've got a book to read for Thursday, which, of course, I'm not going to read all of, but it's from someone who was in the Obama White House called West Winging It. See what they did there. Yeah, exactly. So it's just constant. It's very difficult to find space in that. Because without the space, you can't, you just can't be creative. You're just piling knowledge and knowledge, which is great. Today on the show, we had the Manic Street Preachers. Last week, I interviewed Sir Elton John. Brilliant. Loads of anecdotes, loads of fun stuff to talk about. But it, but this is success. 
Does well, it feel how you thought it would feel? I think success is financial, right? And two kids and, uh, you know, and mortgages and all that is, uh, is quite a drain on those finances. So I'll feel, when I feel successful, I think success is, is being able to have time. That's success. Do you think everyone feels that they're winging it? Do you think the Prime Minister, the President, the President is certainly winging it at the moment, whether he feels like he's winging it? Well, he it would never. The, the President is probably, President of the United States of America is probably the least winging it person in the world because he's such a, a narcissist and outwardly supremely confident. And he's tall and he's rich from birth and he's entitled. He's not winging it. He's not plagued with doubts, is he? No, like it doesn't seem know. that way. It doesn't. Listen, he takes everything and brushes them all away. I mean, fair play to him in that respect. Where else have you been on your travels? Well, we just got back from Barcelona, which was amazing at the weekend. Went on a cruise ship called the Symphony of the Seas, which is the biggest cruise ship in the world. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, I never thought I'd go on a cruise ship, right? Because I'm not in my 70s. And the very idea of going on it was like, well, I'm not doing that. Uh, and then we were invited to go on it because it was a cruise ship which was for families. So we went on it, and our family loved it. And there was something amazing about, I'll never forget it, Friday morning, it's about seven in the morning, my wife and I had to sleep in separate beds because the kids were, couldn't sleep in a bed together because they were just being ridiculous. So my wife got up early before my daughter had woken up. My son was still fast asleep. She just kind of woke me up and said, come and sit on the balcony with me. With me. And we had a balcony which is about the length of this room, a bit shorter. And we sat in these deck it's chairs. It's a long room, I should say. It it's a long it's a room. Really long it, room. Was a, it was a big balcony <laughs> on the 11th deck of the ship, looking out over the Mediterranean. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was just serene. The Mediterranean was just as flat as a swimming pool, with the odd ripple where some creature underneath, just under the, was daring to surface and then thinking better of it. And just the odd little bit of white foam dotted around, catching your peripheral vision and it was just surreal we were in bathrobes and just kind of looked out I just thought this is amazing I need more of those moments I mean we live near the Peak District the Peak District is beautiful whenever we go to the Peak District we're going with two kids under ten, you know 10 and 8 year old our dog is Staffordshire Bull Terrier and it's chaos holidays change when you have kids there I, oh. I thought I was going to sling on a backpack and a kid on the other side and head off to Nepal and carry on trekking and everything and as it is I go to the Costa del Sol every six weeks at the moment when I've got a school holiday. Anywhere that's got a kids club right? Yeah. And I can see the validity of that definitely. See you scoff at those people don't you? You think you're never going to be one of those parents. And then you get to understand exactly why you would be one of them. And that's why that cruise ship, Symphony of the Seas, was so good. There was like four pools and water slides and you know that was it. Perfect. You know they had the time of their lives. It's about as many experiences as you could give your kids, you know, and that's why travel is such an important part. That's why we go to Sri Lanka. That's why it was great to take them to Barcelona. The problem is, is when you go to Sri Lanka every year, it takes up a lot of your holiday budget for a year uh, and you end up spending four to six weeks there, at least the kids do. So we need to try and work out a way we can go to Sri Lanka and go somewhere else so they get to see a bit more of the world. You know, they've been to Rome, which was great. I guess we need to take them somewhere in America because my wife's American citizen. So Have you not taken them over there yet? We have, but they were young. They were really, really young. Is travel important to you? Like, it's essential, you know. It's essential. And at the moment, because of work and moving to Manchester and all the finances involved with that, I feel very trapped in this country at the moment. I feel very trapped. I feel as though I'm not... There's a whole world going on that 
I am not party to. And when I was DJing at Radio One, of course, I got to see a lot of that world. You know, I'd go to Australia, I went to India, I went to Singapore, I went to all that. And then I was on the board of the British Council. I went to Kenya, I went to Zimbabwe, I DJed in Malawi. So, you know, I've seen a lot of the world and I don't want that to stop. I think it's one of those things that perhaps maybe in my late 50s, early 60s, I'll just start doing it again. You know, once the kids, I mean, they'll be in university in eight years and I'll be in my mid-50s, so then maybe we can just go, right, screw you guys, right? Screw you guys. You're doing a Saturday job. You're doing a weekend summer job. Your mother and I are going away, you know. I've just got into Instagram very late compared to lots of other people, but I'm following Instagram. I'm following lots of travel accounts, and I see lots of people who have supposedly given up their work and school and everything, and they just seem to travel the world, and I'm so... I find that so appealing, yet also so hard to just sort of ditch everything, you know, when you've got a career to worry yeah. about. You've just got responsibilities. You can't just throw it. Also, as well, I can't do it on a budget. Like we're, My wife and I, we're not those kinds of people. Like I can't camp. Right, I'm just not going to do that. There's someone we know, parents at school, and they're planning this kind of insane interrail throughout Europe next summer. And they're like two nights here. To, I just, that, that's not my idea of fun. Just like skiing is not my idea of fun. You know, I want to go somewhere and have some time to relax. I need to clear my brain. I need to unwind. So when you were doing your, in your big DJ, music DJ days, and travelling the world for Radio 1, you must have had some wild nights. Tell me about a wild night you've had out, if you can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bangkok was mad. We're on this road in Bangkok called Sukhumvit. And we're talking to these two uh, women who are clearly women that uh, you could pay for their amorous services. And we made it clear, or I certainly made it clear that's something I wasn't going to do. But if you wanted to hang out and talk to me, that's absolutely fine. And uh, we're talking, and she was cool, actually. And we could hear this noise in the distance. And everybody got really tense around us. And the noise got louder. And we could see that there was this guy walking towards us. He was clearly drunk. He was banging wood on something and, and they, all these people around us were looking at each other going god no not him again not tonight not again and you know we're DJing in Bangkok we're only there for like two nights we're just in and out and he gets closer and closer and closer and everybody's getting more and more tense they're getting worried that this guy what is he going to do he's so uncontrollable he's impetuous he comes here every night he's always drunk he'll always smash something up and they're really concerned as he comes into our view He's a guy I went to school with in Bangkok. And I go, Jay. And he goes, no, yeah. And I managed to calm him down and get him into a cab and he goes off in his taxi. And they were all looking at me like I'm Robin Hood. How did this just happen? I was like, well, I, I have no idea. So what was his story? Was he, why was he there night after night? Listen, was he all, living all, there? Yeah, all I know is, I mean, he was a bit of a wild one. He was definitely a bit of a wild one. I remember he hit me over the head with a metal bar once when we were like kind of school age. He was a bit lively, to say the least. And obviously his life had gone off the rails, and I don't know. And uh, he found himself in Bangkok, obviously doing too much drink and whatever other things he was doing. And, and I just managed to bump into him in Bangkok at like three or four in the morning. I mean, it was really, really late. I mean, on this road, this Sukhumvit Road or whatever, there's just loads of cafes set up. There's places where you could just buy food. And that's what we were, post-DJ gig, just there talking to uh, two women of the night. I spent three months in Bangkok once. I've been there several times, but one time I spent three months there. And I remember at first feeling quite, you know, kind of cool about the whole women sort of throwing themselves at people. 
thing and thinking, yeah, whatever, you know, everyone's got to make a living. And I'd been there for about six weeks and then my boyfriend joined me. And it was all right when I'd seen them throwing their arms around the business people that I was with or male friends or whatever. But when they started to like try and wrap themselves around my boyfriend, I found it really, really annoying. And I found out all these things that like when they went into the into the loos in the bar, there'd be someone in there giving them a massage and standing at the urinal. All these random things that the men that I'd been hanging out with previously, friends, had not told me were happening. One thing that I really remember about that was the promoter flew us business class to Bangkok and we got on this airline, we, we were standing there and then we suddenly realised that everybody around us was a fat, middle-aged white bloke. And you just kind of looked at them all and Bobby and I... DJs, we were going out as DJs, we were the youngest people on that flight, I think. And we just looked at them all and went, oh, this is so sleazy. It was like the sleaze flight out of London to Bangkok. And I just remember thinking to myself, and to this day, just how many pedos were on that flight? You know, guys that were going out there to find young girls or young boys, who knows, to satisfy their uh, illegal urges. Um, it's really quite unpleasant, I've got to yeah. say, the flight out there. And then the more you saw it, you walk around there and you just thought, you know, this is poverty, right? This is what poverty does. They know that, that flesh sells. And that's just yeah, it's very difficult to see. And you see many old men out with their very young ladies that they're clearly seeing, you know, money has probably passed hands. And part of me is a bit disgusted. And the other part of me is a bit well, I, I can't relate because, you know, these are cultural things that I have nothing about. I don't know what it's like to grow up in it's poverty. Cultural. It's just poverty. It's, exactly. But poverty and the fact that there is this market and they know that they can earn hard currency that will pay for their children or it'll pay for their family who live in the rural parts of Thailand is it's horrible. And the thing is, as well, is, is that's what you do see. What is the stuff you do not see? What is the stuff that caters to those really disgusting, illegal urges that some of these individuals, these men have? I mean, someone was telling me, I interviewed a woman who did a photographic exhibition based on the red light district in Mumbai. She said there was a room that she took a photo of, which was a, it was an attic, and in it was a cage. When she asked what that cage was for, she said, oh, this is where we break the girls. So when they traffic them, in order to break their spirit, they put them in that cage. And you're just like... You know, it's worse than animals, far worse than animals. And, you know, you get to see that and you go to these parts of the world and you see it. You know, look, if you go to, you know, I've DJed in Dubai and we walked into a club once and every single woman in that club was a prostitute. Every single one. And you're like, this is weird. It's not, it's not a nice house either, it's, is it? It's, it's not fun. It's, it's not like it's going not out in any city. It's not a nice in the fun I mean, presumably if you are don't mind paying for sex, then it's a great night out. It wasn't really for me. You travel to the world and you see these different cultures and you see the same thing, which is poverty, right? Wherever you go. I mean, Malawi is by far, I think, of all the places I've been to. That and Dakar is where I've seen poverty I've not seen like that. I mean, Malawi was just like, you know, you drive to Lake of Stars, which is this festival. You get off at the airport, I think it's Ilongwe, I think it is. And then you drive, and then suddenly you are driving through dust. Literally, you see mud huts, kids with ripped T-shirts and no shoes and shorts that are torn up. I mean, like like from a Band-Aid video, right? You look at it going, jeez, you're here. This is, this is as real as it gets. It's been amazing to travel and see some of the places I've seen, but you just see some. Kibera, for instance, which is the biggest slum in Africa, going into there on a Sunday morning with the British Council to go and see some of the work that the British Council paid for. It was muddy, I remember. It was so muddy. And 
and yet it was a Sunday. I know it was a Sunday because people were coming out of their houses in the crispest, whitest church garments you could imagine. Even in the midst of all that squalor and filth, going to church, you make that statement, there would not be a drop of mud. There would not be a stain on what you were wearing as you walked past the shallow ditches full of human excrement on your way to church. Extraordinary. On a lighter note, where has been the most fabulous, fun, wonderful place you've been? It's an interesting question. Um, I think going to the Spa Grand Prix in, in Belgium, which I'm going back to, I think, this August. I did that two years in a row with Mercedes-Benz. And you just see this kind of wealth. You know, it's unbelievable wealth that you see at a Grand Prix. Now, I haven't been to Monaco, which, or Monaco or Bahrain, or one of those kind of destinations where it's just off-the-scale wealth, like off-the-scale you know, at Monaco, they you know they park their yachts and then watch the thing. And then it, that's, but even at Spa, you know, you'd have people that own vintage Ferraris all driving in three of them together and hire them or whatever they own them. Um, that was fascinating because I'm not really into F1, but just to be able to go to to that Grand Prix as a guest of Mercedes and and see the mechanics of it, you know, get access to the paddock and then get access to to meet some of the the. the the team and you know have a chat with Lewis Hamilton and all that stuff is quite quite extraordinary seeing that I mean where are you are you in some sort of hospitality area is the champagne flowing oh, there's all situation? that I mean there's all that you're, you're all completely looked after it's that kind of European permatan pink jumper tied around your shoulders pink shirt chinos loafers a very expensive Patek Philippe or Hublot or one of those kind of ways, you know, you no know one's going to wear a Rolex. You're going to wear something a little bit more sophisticated than that. You know, it's that wealth that you see. So that's quite unusual to be in close proximity to people with that much money. It's fascinating. It is just power. It exudes power. And where else? I mean, India, I always, somehow, like, I close my eyes and I always think of my many trips to India and they've always been dusty and hot and grimy. There hasn't been anything glamorous. I've not been to Rajasthan and that's something I need to do at some point. Sri Lanka is always the most beautiful place. I mean, you go to Sri- anyone who goes to Sri Lanka falls in love with it. I've yet to meet anyone that hasn't said that, you know, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin and Fern Cotton, or they've all been and they've all, you know, they've all said how much they adore Sri Lanka. And it's one of those places, it's kind of India without the hustle. And there are some beautiful boutique hotels in Sri Lanka. This hotel called Kandalama in Sri Lanka, which is built into a rock and built decades ago, but it, it's so eco friendly. It was designed to go, okay, you can build this hotel here, but it cannot be a stain on this beautiful environment that you have around you. So the water's recycled and it's just beautiful. It's one of those hotels where you wake up in the morning and there's a family of monkeys on your balcony and they're just staring at you, just waiting for you to leave your door ajar for them to come in and steal everything you own, throw it around, mock you, throw it back at your head. That freaks the hell out of me. I'm always a bit scared of wildlife. Are you? <laughs> I've had monkeys attack me. Yeah, yeah, my daughter has. But last time we were in Sri Lanka, we saw a, a monkey get electrocuted. That was weird. It just jumped onto the wrong wire. Oh, that's terrible. And it was so bad that it shorted out the village, killed it instantly. And what was fascinating was all the other monkeys... We said, well, you're going to remove the body. And they said, we can't, not for another hour or so, because all the other monkeys are looking at us as if we killed it. Oh. And they're angry, because it was the leader of, of their group. 
So before I ask you my last question, yeah. do you think there's anything I've missed in terms of travel? Do you know, it's one of those things is you know, I walk out You'll there go, and go, you go, oh yeah. my God, I didn't <laughs> tell you about the time I pogo sticked down Everest. I mean, you know, I'm lucky. In 2016, I went to the Rio Olympics, spent two and a half weeks in Brazil. But, you know, you never really see much of it. You know, you are, you are at an Olympics in Rio, but you, you kind of go into aircraft hangars to watch sport. And then you come out to another aircraft hangars where someone from the BBC tells you the aircraft hangar you'll be in the following day. You know, you're not there on a jolly. So, yes, you're on Copacabana Beach and there's loads of tanned guys and girls with amazing bodies hanging around. You know, I got to comment out on the beach volleyball. You know, it's not a bad gig, you know, on Copacabana Beach. But, you know, it's not like I went into the rainforest, you know. I just wonder how adventurous I really am. I don't think I am. I like being just the right side of civilised. I'm not that guy who's going to go hitchhiking in Nepal. I'm just not going to do that. It's not, it's not my thing. What's been the most serene moment you've had on your travels? The most serene thing I think I've ever had away outside this country is swimming along, snorkelling. My wife was in our little villa thing we had in the Maldives. My son was asleep. He was eight. I don't know. He was, he was even two at the time. And um, snorkelling along. And it's just at that moment, part of the sea, where it suddenly drops and it gets deep. And it's, you can see it there, just that slope. And I'm just swimming along. It's calm. Have you been to Maldives? It's just so yeah, flat, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I look to my right-hand side, there's a turtle next to me. And he's just swimming along next to me. And I just, that moment could have lasted forever. Because I just floated there, just looking outside with the snorkel. So I was breathing, just, I was just under the surface. Beautiful creature in its natural habitat. Not in a zoo, not in an aquarium. There, in a wide open sea. And that, I think, it, to me, is, is the most sort of blissful moment, I think, ever. So my last question is about music. And because I always think that music and travel go hand in hand they for do. many, many reasons. Yeah, they do. Maybe because we've got the time to listen to music or because it evokes memories or for many reasons, I think. But if you had to pinpoint one song that could pinpoint a moment in time that you've had a beautiful, maybe serene, maybe memorable, fantastic, maybe even ridiculous moment. It might not be your favourite song, but what would that be? Wow. It's not a song. So it's not really an answer to your question. It's more of a moment of finding a record store in Beirut which had underground Arabic dance music. And that's what I wanted to find. It was at a, a time of great tension in Beirut. So people were very suspicious and I remember walking down the street and there was a tank, you know, with soldiers on it, just guarding the street, just looking. Just all I could, and I still own the T-shirt I bought in that store. And I've still got the CD somewhere. And I was really adamant in Beirut that I wanted to go and find a place that had Lebanese dance music, like Lebanese left field electronica. Not even dance music, not house, but electronica. Something that I could just listen to and go, okay, this is, this is the sound of underground Beirut now. So it's not a track, it's just that I always remember that moment of trying to find something. Yeah, Seek out new music in cities that you go to. But you can't do that in Malawi because it just doesn't exist. But you could in Beirut because I'd searched for it and I'd heard about it and I'd talked to someone about it. I once DJ drum and bass in a car park in Nairobi. And no one had ever heard drum and bass. So it was really interesting watching them try and work out how to dance to a music form, which is so fast. If you go on, it's 174 BPM. 
If you go until it's 87 BPM, then it's fine. I find it really difficult myself. You have to like really, when you go, you go to jungle place or jungle, you stand there and you think, right, remember how to do this, remember how to do this, and your yeah. body slowly gets it. So it's whether you go in the boom, or you go dun da, dun da, dun da, dun da, dun da, and and one is 87 BPM usually, and the other one's 174 BPM, so double the speed exactly. And after a DJ'd, oh gosh, who did the track? It's bigger than hip hop, hip dead prayers. It's bigger than hip hop, and they were performing in this car park it was the british council car park british council building with their car park in nairobi and i did the kind of warm-up set and then they came on and performed it and it was just mad it was like visceral it's hundreds of kenyans going mad to this song just this big drop that goes as bigger than hip hop hip hop quite a dark beat to it and it just you were just looking at around at everyone these kenyans in a car park in Nairobi, dancing to Dead Prez's hip-hop, and went, okay, this is good. Life is good. I just love that image. Thank you so much, Nihal. A brilliant insight into life in the UK and indeed around the world. And thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, get on iTunes and leave us a review. If you've got an Android phone, just search for the Big Travel Podcast and you will find. You'll also find a new episode every Tuesday, so see you then. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.